Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we take a look at statistics and record keeping in African football. There's a huge contrast between the record keeping in football in most African countries and the European leagues. We speak to African football expert Nuhu Adams in Ghana. Nuhu believes that the lack of basic records and statistics is affecting the progress of African football. It is because most of our African games are not on TV. So it will be very difficult for anyone to watch the game and derive statistics from, from it. That's coming shortly, plus Stuart on the English Premier League and how COVID-19 might affect things in the coming months. But first, continental action is back this weekend with the first legs of the CAF Champions League semi-finals, both being played in Casablanca in Morocco. On Saturday, Widad Casablanca play Al-Akhli of Egypt and it's another Morocco versus Egypt clash on Sunday as Raja Casablanca play Zamalek. Uh, well, Ida, so action back and uh, lots to say. <laughs> Indeed, Steve, quite the busy weekend of continental club football. And two-time winners Widad will be taking on the competition's most successful team, that being Al Ali. And trust me, no doubt where the focus will be. Definitely on uh, Pizzo Musemane. It will be his first CAF Champions League game with the eight-time winners. But the South African will be buoyed by the fact that the club is yet to lose under his short tenure so far. If you ask me though, this I think Steve will be his first real test at Al Ali. But the good thing is that Pizzo is certainly no stranger to facing Widad. The two actually became, you know, if you will, familiar foes while he was coach at Mamelodi Sundown. So I think if anyone knows how to get a result against the Moroccans, it's definitely the South African. As for Raja Casablanca versus Zamalek, well, Raja, of course, coming into this off the back of a dramatic last gasp league title win. A bit of confusion, though, Steve, at Zamalek, with the club announcing that their star midfielder, Pajani Sassi, had tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, that was during the international break. Now, these claims were then refuted by Sassi himself on his Twitter. So, I mean, we'll just have to wait and see if indeed he will be featuring for the five-time champions. But look, no doubt about it. The teams will come into this fatigued. Uh, don't forget that some have been playing every three days in their leagues. Add to that the international breaks, Steve. But you know how it goes. Some are gunning for an all-Egyptian final. Others hoping for an all-Moroccan final. <laughs> uh, we do know that it's often personal with uh, each side wanting to draw first blood. So we'll just have to wait and see on this one. Yeah, indeed. And the CAF Confederation Cup mini tournament kicks off on Monday with Morocco hosting. The first semi-final is all Moroccan as RS Burkhan play Hassania Agadir. Then on Tuesday, Pyramids of Egypt play Horoya of Guinea. The final is on Saturday the 24th. 
Well, it's interesting to see that conditions actually allowed for the Confederation Cup to follow a similar format to Europe's Champions League and Europa League, you know, a sort of bubble mini tournament. As for the Moroccan clubs, well, they have done fairly well in the Confederation Cup. I mean, they have won the competition four times since the year 2000. And quite interesting to note, Steve, that all Moroccan clubs taking part in both the Champions League and Confederation Cup have actually received relief funds from the Royal Moroccan Football Federation ahead of their CAF participation. So just to give you an example of how the Federation comes through for its clubs, uh, for Raja to beat Tipi Mazembe back in the Champions League quarterfinals, well, the Federation actually chartered a plane for Raja all the way to DRC because remember that was in and around the time that the skies had started closing up because of the pandemic. And Steve, while this might be the norm in Europe, it's almost unheard of in Africa. Another interesting thing is the fact that unlike the CAF Champions League, well, Steve, the CAF Confederation Cup is quite unique in the fact that no previous winner is in this year's semifinal. So we are guaranteed of one thing, and that is a new winner, so to speak. Yes. Thanks, Ida. Great to have the Confederation Cup back along with the Champions League. Next month, the Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers resume. So on the show this week, we're focusing on statistics and record keeping in African football. Uh, for me, I often notice the stark contrast between the record keeping in football here in Zimbabwe and in the European leagues. Uh, for example, the English Football League began way back in 1888. And if you search online, you'll find extensive records and information dating all the way back to 1888. Uh, but here there's hardly any detailed information on the Zimbabwean top flight, and not only if you go way back, but even for the most recent season last year. In the English Premier League, we have statistics on how many assists a player has made, for example. Uh, here in Zimbabwe, we have details of goal scorers, but uh, not assists or any of all that other detail. And we don't even have official statistics of national team appearances. And sadly, much of the television footage hasn't been archived, so we can't get to watch the legends of the 70s, 80s, even the 90s. Now, when it comes to continental level, you can now find details of every edition of the Africa Cup of Nations online, uh, going back to 1957. That's, though, thanks to the hard work of some experts over the past 20 years or so. Well, thankfully, things are improving now at continental level. I spoke to Nuhu Adams in Kumasi in Ghana. Uh, Nuhu works for Inchira FM and for GhanaSoccerNet.com. Uh, Nuhu is a well-known African sports journalist, and he's taking things forward with information and statistics of African competitions, including the Nations Cup qualifiers, the Champions League. Nuhu posts statistics on social media, including the lineups, and at club level, he'll give you the nationalities of the players, uh, the results, the top scorers and other relevant stats. So I asked Anuhu how he feels about the lack of record keeping in African football. Well, Steve, um, it's, it's a privilege to be on the show for the first time. I've been listening for some time now and I think it's one of the best football podcasts you get in Africa. Um, the question about statistics and data in African football is one thing that has derailed African football progress. It is one thing 
that is letting African football down. You will hear about a particular player, you will hear about a particular team doing so well in an African country, but it will be very difficult for you to get even a single stat or a single data on such a player or such a team. It is very, very difficult. And I think um, this has to do with how everything started in African football. We were so unfortunate that we took the game as a hobby. We were just enjoying the game for the fun of it. We didn't know to get to a point statistics and data will be required because there's no way you can project the African game to the rest of the world without backing it with statistics and data. And so I think um, how we started everything is something that has really, really affected us. CAF is improving. I've seen CAF trying to get some statistics around after the group stages of this year's CAF competitions. I've seen CAF posting um, who was the best passer, who was the best defender in terms of interceptions, who was the top scorer, who is leading the assist chart. And that's quite impressive. Everybody following the CAF Champions League and the Confederation Cup will at least know what the players are doing for their various clubs in the competition. So that's an improvement there. But one thing is that it is because most of our African games are not on TV. So it will be very difficult for anyone to watch the game and derive statistics from, from it. I was doing one, one for the Ghana Premier League. And what I was doing is that the few matches that I'll get on TV, I take few stats from the, the, those things. After the games, I will have to call individual players, coaches, and other followers of the clubs just to ask them who assisted with goal, who gave the pass to the last person before he scored. So getting statistics has always been difficult. But some, as I said, I was try, I'm, I'm trying to do my best. And it, it is quite embarrassing. Let me give an example. When you come to the Ghana Premier League, you always say that Ismail Ado is the all-time top scorer of the Ghana Premier League. But it will be very difficult for any journalist in Ghana to tell us the number of goals Ismail Ado scored in the number of matches he played. You can't even mention who has the highest number of games in the history of the Ghana Premier League because we couldn't keep statistics. We couldn't keep data of individual players and, and, and clubs. So it's very, very embarrassing. But if you look at the game at the moment in the rest of the world, statistics is projecting the leaks. Data is projecting the leaks. They are able to market their leaks based on statistics and then data. So if you are lacking this, then you are not ready to de develop. You are not ready to progress. So Steve, um, that's, that's my simple thought on the lack of statistics and data in the African game. But there, there are more room for improvement and I think um, with time, some of us will, will, will do our best to ensure that um, we are getting few statistics and data for the African games. Yeah, so sounds very similar there in Ghana to how it is here in Zimbabwe. Um, I think about three seasons ago, there was a dispute over who should have won the top goal scorer award here because uh, there'd been a goal scored in a game in a small town and nobody was really sure who actually had uh, put the ball in the back of the net. So like you say, it does uh, stop the development. But 
realistically speaking, is the hope for improvement in African leagues in terms of statistics and record keeping? Well, there are hopes. There are hopes because um, if you look at the North African leagues, they are doing so well. They are trying to improve. If today we can identify John Entry as the highest scoring foreigner in the history of the Egyptian league, it should tell you the Egyptians are keeping records. The Egyptians are keeping statistics. That is why they can come out and say John Entry is the highest scoring foreigner. It is not like the, the case in other leagues, but I've seen um, statistics and records of players playing in the Tunisian league, Algeria league. I've seen others in the Morocco league too. They are doing extremely well. The Ivory Coast League is also having a website dedicated for the league. And if you go there, you can at least get one or two statistics or records of players and teams' performances. And I think it's, 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 it's quite impressive. Um, it, it should encourage the other leagues to pull the same line. Kumasiya Sante Kotoko is a big club in Ghana. Recently, they went into agreement with Interstats. And what Interstats are going to do for them is that they'll be following Kumasiya Sante Kotoko in every single game they are going to play. And they will derive statistics from those games for the club at Sante Kotoko. So if the leagues are not doing it, at least the clubs can start something by engaging the institutions who are involved in deriving statistics and records from, from games. So we can start from there. I think when we start the, the, the supports and others will come in for, for more improvement. And uh, Nuhu, how do you feel when you watch the English Premier League matches on TV with all of those uh, detailed statistics? Uh, for example, when there's a penalty, they can show you the stats of the last five penalties that the kicker has taken, whether he's shot it to the left or the right or down the middle, uh, whether he's scored or not. Uh, how do you feel when you see that level of detail? Well, when I see those things in the English Premier League and the other leagues in Europe, it tells you one thing that Africa is lagging behind. But we can do something. We are not going to match them, but we can close the, the gap by making sure things are done properly here. If things are done properly here, I can assure you that it will get to a point nobody will lack statistics, records keeping and data on African football. That's African football expert Nuhu Adams in Kumasi in Ghana. We were speaking on Zoom there. You can follow Nuhu on Twitter at NuhuAdams underscore. Asking for your thoughts this week on social media. Tell us how's the statistics and record keeping in football in your country. As we've highlighted, there's a huge contrast between the record-keeping in football in most African countries and the European leagues. Uh, basic details like the number of appearances for players, the goal scorers and assists can be hard to find. So how's the record-keeping and stats in your country, and do you see it as cause for concern? You can go to our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, and post a comment there, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. 
Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, Stuart on the English Premier League, summing up the transfer market as action returns this weekend. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA, and our website is planetsport.tv. Recently added there is a look at tips on tackling tough times. A very encouraging blog. Uh, to get there, go to our website, planetsport.tv, and click on the blog section. You'll see tips on tackling tough times. Uh, very useful if you are going through struggles right now. Well, to social media now. Last week we asked, what does it take for small teams to become competitive? As teams are getting ready for next month's Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers, we heard from Lesotho coach Tabo Senong, and we asked, what does it take for small teams to become competitive? We have seen more and more smaller teams causing upsets over the years, like Madagascar, who went all the way to the Nations Cup quarterfinals on their debut last year. So does it take a crop of star players maybe, or a top coach, or maybe a strong footballing culture, or good leadership, or going to search for players in the diaspora who can play for you? We've had another fascinating cross-section of replies this week. Here with the comments is Planet Sport Football Africa's Yvonne Mangunda. Thanks, Steve. And we start on Facebook with Chimwemwe Kuali Mpamanda in Malawi, who says... We cannot deny the importance of good leadership and good coaches. As well, we need the combination of star players and a new breed of younger players coming through. Teams must also be well supported financially and have good football infrastructures. They should have enough time to prepare, including having friendly matches with big teams. And turning now to WhatsApp, John in Ghana agrees. Well, I think it's all about you getting the right crop of players in the team, says John. Having the right coach, too, also helps sometimes. Odipo Morris got in touch from Kenya. I believe the success of a nation's football is a function of all the factors you mention, says Odipo. However, internal dynamics play a big role, too. A strong footballing culture results from stability in the domestic federations. So issues of finance and political support are also key points for the growth of local leagues and the national sides in general. Jata Samba is in the Gambia. Well, in the past years, we've seen small teams causing upsets, and I think it is all about the dedication from the players and having a good leader and staff who are ready to take their country to another level, says Jata. The coach and his staff have to give the players courage to believe that no matter where you come from, if you have dedication and support, the team will surely make it. To Malaysia now and Mustafa Torre says, I believe it's down to good leadership and what that leadership can instill in the players. Nowadays, football is a common language which every player can speak. But to play it fluently, it needs motivation and trust from leaders such as the technical team. Small teams will be competitive so long as trust and courage is shown to them from their leaders and their nation of supporters as well, says Mustafa. Obina has shared his thoughts too, which may be based on his experience in his country, Nigeria. A strong footballing culture is the best way forward, says Obina. It is the best way to build for the future. Gemo is a Cameroonian living in the USA. 
I think a combination of lots of things can make small teams become more competitive, says Gemo. First would be to believe in the team. Second is good leadership and togetherness. And third would be hard work and extra effort. Lastly, I will say there will be ups and downs. So trust the process, knowing it might take time for everything to work properly. Yes, sound advice there from Gemo, but that's the tension, isn't it? When so many teams are seeking instant success. It's always good to hear from listeners in the wider diaspora, like Gemo in the USA, and Mustafa in Malaysia, whom we heard from earlier. And here now is Bakari Nyasi, who is in the United Arab Emirates. Yes, you do need a crop of star players and a top coach in a team, says Bakari. But on the other hand, in football nowadays, you also need players who are dedicated and hardworking in order to succeed. And Tebi Otieno in Kenya agrees. I think it is all about individual players, says Tebi. How far each one proves their capabilities matters a lot. But for Muhammad Torre in the Gambia, it's not just down to the players, as he believes several factors are involved. For a small team to be successful, you need a top coach, a strong footballing culture and good leadership, says Mohammed. The right man should be in the right place of football management and the players should be ready to give all they have to make a name for their respective team or nation. And it's also important to search for players in the diaspora that are ready for the job. And Francisco Dodoma in Malawi agrees. I guess it is just a collection of factors to make a team competitive, says Francisco, especially as football now is becoming more unpredictable. Small and new teams might be unstoppable because of their levels of motivation, incentives, leadership and charisma, to mention but a few. And finally, Dominic Ompile in Botswana says simply, in football, we all know that with a small team, anything can happen. So there you are, Steve. Lots of different views as expected, but some factors keep coming up, such as the importance of a good coach and the motivation of the players. And so with that said, I wonder which of the smaller teams will rise to the challenge and surprise us in the upcoming Afghan qualifiers. <laughs> yes, you just never know, do you? And it's exciting, these surprises that we're getting in African football. Thanks a lot. That's Yvonne Mangunda. Let's go to Stuart Weir now in the UK, our European football expert. And uh, Stuart, uh, this international window for friendlies and UEFA Nations League games seems to have been costly in terms of players contracting COVID-19, including Cristiano Ronaldo and Naby Keita. And the COVID situation seems to be getting worse in Europe. So what are the implications for football there? Well, first of all, that Ronaldo and Navigator have tested positive for COVID simply shows that the disease is no respecter of persons or superstars. But so far, football in England has managed the pandemic quite well. Sale Rugby Club lost the chance to make the top four and contest the playoffs last week in their final game of the rugby league because their game was postponed twice, first because they had 18 and then 25 of their players and staff testing positive. So that just highlights the dangers of having a group of players training together, sharing a changing room and meals together. 
If one has the virus, it can spread rapidly throughout the team. Fortunately, as I say, in the Premier League, we've avoided that so far. But numbers of COVID cases are growing in England at the moment, and we should not be surprised if games are postponed in the same way as that rugby. Then this week, Chelsea's Tammy Abraham and Ben Chilwell, along with Jaden Sancho, were dropped from the England squad because they had attended a birthday party for Abraham, which breached COVID safety rules. So that's another issue. The Premier League has been pressing the government to allow spectators to return to games, perhaps following the German model, where season ticket holders who live close to the stadium and who therefore wouldn't need to use public transport are being given priority. But with stricter conditions being introduced in England this week, there seems little chance of spectators being allowed to attend Premier League games anytime soon. And by that, I mean not before Christmas and possibly not at all this season. While the Premier League clubs will all survive, there was a real fear that some of the 72 English Football League clubs would go bankrupt and disappear. But the Premier League has now agreed a financial package to help them. But there's not much good news anywhere, Steve. Well, yes, I guess at least we can watch the games on TV, even if the stadiums are empty. And the English Premier League is back this weekend. Two big games on Saturday. That's Man City against Arsenal and surprise leaders Everton taking on the champions Liverpool. We're just going back to the transfer market, Stuart. Uh, Which clubs would you say did the best in recent weeks? Well, yes, Steve, despite the loss of income for Premier League clubs caused by the pandemic, there was still a staggering $1.3 billion spent on new players in the summer transfer window. And while net spending on players in Germany, Italy and the Spanish leagues dropped drastically this year, the Premier League is up 30% compared to last year. Chelsea were the biggest spenders, $285 million dollars, And Chelsea were also involved in three of the top four in terms of expensive signings in the summer. Kai Havertz from Bayern Leverkusen, Timo Werner from Leipzig, Ben Chilwell from Leicester City. They also signed the 36-year-old Brazilian Thiago Silva from PSG and two Africans, Edouard Monde and Hakim Zayk. A real statement of intent from Chelsea, but at the same time it puts a lot of pressure on Frank Lampard, who will be expected to have a team that challenges for the Premier League this year. Arguably Everton have done really well in the transfer window, particularly with the acquisition of James Rodriguez from Real Madrid. Remember his wonder goal for Colombia in the 2014 World Cup, and he scored three goals in four games in the Premier League this season. Everton have also added Norwich City central defender Ben Godfrey. While Arsenal's main signing is the Ghanaian Thomas Partey we talked about last week from Atletico Madrid, they've also picked up Willian on a free transfer from Chelsea and another Brazilian, Gabriel, from Lille in France. You sort of just feel that Arsenal are beginning to look more like Mikel Arteta's team. Liverpool showed themselves to be the best team in England and so didn't really need to do much in the transfer market. But the addition of Thiago Alcantara from Bayern and Jota from Wolves will do enough just to freshen up their squad and make the current regulars realise they're not guaranteed their place. But I think two of the losers in the transfer market have been the two Manchester clubs. 
Having lost top spot Liverpool, I expected Manchester City to do some serious business. You know, Nathan Aki from Bournemouth, Ruben Diaz from Benfica, Ferran Torres from Valencia are all fine players. I don't see any of those as players who will revolutionise the team and push them from second to winning the league this year. Manchester United have added Edison Cavani from PSG, Alex Tellez from Porto and Donny van der Beek from Ajax. But they failed to get Jadon Sancho, who seemed to me to be their main target. And they've done little about the problems with the defence. Only Tellez of those three signings is a defender. And Donny van der Beek, who looks to be their main signing, but Solskjaer has only given him 49 minutes in three league games, leaving one wondering if his acquisition was actually the manager's choice or came from higher up. Now, there have been nine Africans who have joined the Premier League in the transfer window. Aston Villa have signed from Burkina Faso, Bernard Traore. Arsenal have got Thomas Partey from Ghana. Chelsea... Edouard Mondi, Senegal, and Hakim Zayek, Moroccan. Southampton have got Sally, who's a Ghanaian. Manchester City have another player from Burkina Faso, Isaac Kabori. Manchester United have signed the teenager Ahmed Traore. And Sheffield United, Ismela Koulibaly, who is from Mali. But having signed him, they immediately sent him out on loan to Belgium. Yes, so we'll see how those new African editions do in the English Premier League. Thanks a lot, Stuart. That's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers and Yvonne Mangunda in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.